Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to uh, this week's edition of Exchange Trade Fridays, a weekly podcast from ETF.com covering economic business and the ETF world and wrapping up your week. I'm Dan Micah, a reporter from ETF.com, and with me are my colleagues, Samit Roy. Hey, everyone. And Heather Bell. Hi, everybody. So obviously, there's there's plenty to talk about uh, just in the broad scheme of uh, of finance uh, with the Fed minutes coming out. Uh, so, I mean, let's just quickly run through that. Um, we have the Fed minutes today showing that we're excuse me on Wednesday um, discussing the uh, what they really wanted to do was to go with a, a fifty basis point hike or um, or a five hundred basis point hike in um in march but they decided to stick with a, a quarter percent hike uh, just due to the uncertainty around ukraine what has what, what is this weird situation that we're seeing in, in the market we have some inverted yields uh, or inverted, inverted yield curves but it seems like stocks are still doing relatively okay and people are and the curves are steepening yeah dan i don't think anything much has changed in terms of the trends we've witnessed over the past several weeks or even past couple of months everyone knows the general trend in the bond market has been for higher rates and also the trend has been for a flattening or even an inversion of many parts of the yield curve and those trends haven't changed the higher rate trend certainly is in place we just hit new cycle highs across the board today the 10 years at 2.73%, the five years at 2.79%, and the two years at 2.5%. Now, on Thursday, we did see a very modest reversal in the yield curve flattening trade after that jobless claims number came out, because that jobless claims number was the lowest level since 1968. So with that data point, a lot of traders reason that clearly the job market, it's super hot. And that gives the Fed more room to hike rates aggressively without tipping the economy into a recession. Hence, we saw a little bit of a steepening in the yield curve. Now, today, the 10-year is about 20 basis points above the two-year, which is a better situation to be in than last week when uh, the curve was inverted and the two-year was seven basis points above the 10-year. So that's good. But I definitely don't think that we're out of the woods yet. The Fed is going to hike rates much faster than it has in a long time. And we really don't know um, whether that's going to be enough to bring inflation down one and what the impact on the economy from those hikes is going to be. If you look, mortgage applications and car sales are starting to roll over because of the higher rates. The 30-year fixed, it's above 5%. Buying a new house is really expensive right now. So these higher rates, they're having an impact, and that's what the Fed wants to see. But it's a balancing act, right? They want a soft landing, not a hard landing. And it's very hard to steer a ship as large as the U.S. economy with an instrument as blunt as interest rates. 
With all that said, uh, what should ETF investors do? That's the big question. I like to keep it simple personally. You know, for years, people were complaining about how you couldn't get any yield in the bond market. Well, now you have your yield. The yield on LQD is approaching 4%. The yield on HYG is approaching 6%. You can get 2.5% to 3% on treasuries pretty much across the maturity spectrum. SHV, SHY, IEF, TLT, they're all giving you some decent yield uh, right now. And you get to choose what level of interest rate risk you want. If you don't want much movement in, in your principal, go with SHV or SHY. If you want to lock in these rates for longer and maybe benefit uh, from price appreciation if yields go down, go with IEF or TLT. I really wouldn't complicate things. Um, but well, what about you guys? Have you found other ETFs or other strategies that are worth keeping an eye on in this economic environment? Um, there, There's actually two... Um equity funds that I think are interesting. The one from Horizon Kinetics, uh, which is uh, under the ticker INFL. Um, and then the uh, ETF from Fidelity, FCPI. They're both up significantly year to date and they're just equity funds. Um, so they're finding advantages in the market. Um, and they're really offering some great returns year to date. Um, the um, the big question I have, though, um, and maybe Samit, you're—I uh, don't want to put you on the spot, but I was wondering if you could maybe—I don't know—enlighten me on this. But TIP is down like f- over four percent year to date, and it's had three billion in as- in outflows, um, and that was kind of confusing to me, given that inflation is so high. That's super interesting, Heather. You would have expected uh, more inflows if people were concerned about inflation. And I'm not sure if you're aware, Dan, or you're aware, Heather, wasn't there big inflows into TIP last year? So maybe people figure with the Fed tightening so aggressively, eventually that's going to bring inflation down and um, nominal bonds are going to outperform TIPs if inflation um, comes in lower than what the market's currently pricing in. Yeah, I, I actually wrote about this back in way early in, in early February. The the reason is just the effective duration of TIP is relatively high. Uh, I think it's um, back in February is about six seven point six years. So um, you know, of course, the, the you know the higher a, a bond fund's duration is, the more likely it's going to lose its value as uh, interest rates rise. So uh, TIP, uh, I think the Schwab's U.S. TIPS ETF was around seven point six two. I think SPD the the uh, State Street TIPS fund. And I think the Pimco uh, TIPS fund were all relatively high. You know, up in those up around that seven percent range. So. Um, I, I think if you wanted to get into tips, um, I, I think a lot of people just reallocated really quickly to the the shorter end of the spectrum where um, there was there was less uh, duration risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Dan. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's let's pivot to uh, you know just more co- coverage of this past quarter. Uh, Samit, you have a story up on the site uh, today, I believe. Uh, you just took a look at some uh, some launches from the quarter that you found particularly interesting. Let's let's get into that. Let's get into the nitty gritty. What's what's some of your most interesting? Um, what's piquing your interest as of late? 
Yeah, so we talked about launches briefly on last week's episode, and that kind of inspired me to delve a little bit deeper into that and, and write up a whole piece on interesting ETF launches. Heather and Dan, you both cover this stuff much more closely than I do. And, and so I didn't realize that the pace of ETF launches this year is actually ahead of last year's, which was a record. We, we had 107 ETF launches or so in Q1, which was more than the 89 we had in Q1 of last year. Um, and for context, there were 477 new ETFs that launched in 2021, which was an annual record. Now, that in and of itself is pretty dang impressive that um, new ETFs are coming out at such a rapid clip. But if you compare it to the IPO market, it's even more dramatic. I mean, according uh, to data I saw from PwC, there were only eight traditional U.S. IPOs in the first quarter. And that's the smallest number of IPOs in a quarter since 2016 when we had all that drama about Brexit. So no slowdown in ETF launches, unlike with, ET, unlike with IPO, sorry. And so we're talking about 100 new ETFs already this year. And that's a ton of potential investment opportunities for people. Um, so if you're going to sift through that, it's going to take a long time. Um, and it's really hard to find something interesting. There's a lot of unoriginal funds in there, um, nothing really novel. Um, so I tried to look and find things that were kind of stood out to me. I'm not saying these are the best ETFs they're going to outperform or anything. These are just the ETFs that caught my eye because they were interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about a couple of them right now. But if you want to see the rest, um, feel free to look at that article that we're going to put up on the website. So one of these ETFs is the Vanek Digital India ETF, DGIN. This one stood out to me because there's a lot of interest in India as an investment opportunity. It's got this massive population, fast GDP growth, and the country seems to be embracing technology. Um, and a lot of people consider um, India's payment system actually to be one of the most modern and efficient uh, in the world. Um, it's called UPI. Um, very, very interesting. So given all of that, India looks like it has upside. Now, as an ETF investor, what are you going to do? You could invest in a broad India ETF to capture that upside, something like INDA, the iShares fund. That's a solid choice, but um, it's got a lot of financials. 25% of that portfolio is in financials. There's nothing wrong with that, but if your thesis is that in the U.S., or like in the U.S., tech companies in India are going to be the biggest winners, where is the VGT or the QQQ of India? We really didn't have one until now. So that's kind of what DGIN is. It's the Indian tech ETF. So I thought that was interesting. And um, another one I thought was interesting is the ROC ETF, ticker symbol ROCI. This one's actually uh, kind of amusing. Um, and it just strikes me as an issuer who's throwing something completely out there against the wall and seeing if it sticks. So in this case, ROC um, stands for return on character. And the concept is that the ETF invest in companies uh, in which the executive leadership has good character um, and they think those are going to outperform. So that sounds lovely in theory, and I don't want to hate on such a positive sounding strategy, but I got to be real. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that you can measure these things objectively, one, 
And then that too, even if you could, something like this could generate alpha. But I, I don't know, maybe I'm being too much of a cynic. What do you guys think? Um, do you think ROC uh, can outperform? I'd like to believe so. Um, like you said, it, it sounds really positive and upbeat. Um, I think only time will tell. Um, I, I also think that um, it's kind of a lot of blue chip companies that are already um, kind of in the forefront of the economy. So I don't know how much growth is there for them. Well, I mean, it's already pretty growth heavy at, at the very beginning. Um, um, top holdings, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, United Health Group, Verizon, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Comcast, uh, Costco. So those are all very big companies already. Um, I, I guess it would be you know worth pointing out that Elon Musk is not on here. Uh, uh, Mark, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, their companies are not on here. Um, so that's, I mean, that's probably worth pointing out if, if, this truly is the, the, the factor that they have. Um, but there was um, a study out in 2015 that I think was done by uh, the, the Harvard Business Review. And I, I wrote about this, this launch um, showing that, you know, at least in, in that, you know, companies do tend to outperform if their employees have a higher uh, view of their, of their, of the CEO. So, it could be a factor, but I agree with Heather. Heather, I think um, applying it to the the space of the S and P five hundred and um, or actually the Russell two thousand is their their investable universe. It's gonna it'll take a while. I, I'll be interested to see how it shakes out um, and, and see if this truly does do something uh, remarkable over the long long term and, and outperform uh, the Russell two thousand. Yeah, I honestly hope it does. I mean, but I guess time will tell. Like you like you said. And Heather, I know you want to you want to talk about a couple interesting launches that caught your eye, right? Yes, I've got a few, but I totally agree on Dejan um, from Vanak. Um, the other part of that is uh, after the end of the quarter, you know, earlier this month, uh, this week, in fact, um, Kevin Carter launched the India Internet and E-commerce ETF. INQQ, and that's going to go up against DGEN, and that's going to be an interesting horse race to watch, I think. Um, but pivoting to the funds that caught my eye during the first quarter, there's um, the iShares Paris Aligned Climate MSCI USA ETF, which is a real mouthful. Um, it trades under the ticker PABU, and it's already got $647 million. Um, so it targets companies that are favorably positioned for transition to the low-carbon economy. Um, and it had also adds in some of the typical criteria around ESG. So, of course, the carbon uh, goals of this fund um, – are kind of already covered. So it's going to exclude things like fossil fuels and everything like that, but it also does exclude weapons and tobacco. Um, the, but a competing fund that launched is the engine number one transform climate ETF um, net Z. So these are two funds that are both targeting the low carbon uh, focused stocks of the U S um, and Net Z has like 92 million in assets under management. So Pabu, as I'm calling it, is um, a 
index-based fund. It's got something like, oh my, 319 holdings, whereas NetZ is actively managed, and it has basically one-tenth of the holdings of Pabu, and it is it has 31 holdings. So that's two funds that kind of have the same goals, share the same classification. Um, they've both gotten, like in uh, the iShares funds case, huge assets. Um, and in NetZ's case, really respectable assets. So like I said about Dijin and INQQ, this is going to be an interesting horse race to watch. It's two funds that you know, have very similar goals, but are taking very different approaches to the same, uh, I guess, end goal. So, so, you know, transitioning now from, from new launches to potential, um, to, to launches now currently in the pipeline, especially something um, that's me, I'm sure that you're going to be uh, hearing a lot about in Miami uh, next week. Um, for anyone who's listening, we uh, all three of us will be at Exchange ETF uh, conference in Miami. Uh, say hi if you see us and if we aren't already scheduled to talk with you. Um, but the SEC, yes, uh, on Wednesday, I believe, um, uh, quietly approved then, you know, it kind of blew up in, in the crypto space, but approved of the Tucrium Bitcoin Futures ETF. Uh, now, that on, on its face is not too exciting because we already have three Bitcoin futures ETFs and we're starting to see a blend of equity and um, or and or I think in Vanek's case, they're working on a, a gold and uh, and Bitcoin futures ETF combination. But this is the first ETF that that manages Bitcoin futures under the 33 Act. Uh, structure instead of the 40 act structure, which uh, Gary Gensler has preferred for uh, Bitto and the other um, and, and the other funds. So this is kind of creating quite a stir and, and saying, you know, is this the SEC opening the door, just cracking the door a little bit towards eventually a spot Bitcoin ETF? So what do you think, Dan? Um, you know, I, I know the Bloomberg analysts think that this approval somehow makes a spot Bitcoin ETF more likely. But it seems to me that there's still a long way to go uh, before we get that right. Doesn't the SEC want um, to bring the whole crypto industry more under its fold before it, it inches towards a spot Bitcoin ETF? This doesn't really change that in any way, right? It doesn't, and uh, I, I think it's not just the the. I think it's not the entire industry. Um, obviously, there are plenty of crypto exchanges that um, are small enough to not really move the price. But also, um, you know, I think there's there's dozens of crypto exchanges at this point. So I think they're mainly focusing on the big five, since uh, the majority of of Bitcoin volume goes through the big five, and uh, the big five are also uh, amalgamated into the the spot Bitcoin reference rate that all of the uh, rejected spot issuers are trying to use. Um, but Michael Sonson, uh, the uh, CEO of Grayscale, uh, put out a Twitter thread and just kind of re-upped the letter that his attorneys had sent to the SEC last November, I believe, saying um, that they view the um, basically the, the spot or just like the spot, uh, you know, Pun, pun not intended, the, the spot uh, denial of any uh, uh, pure Bitcoin ETFs um, en masse as, uh, as a, a violation of the civil, of the civil procedure. 
Um, so is certainly so. You know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is trying to convert into an ETF, and they have an up or down decision. I think in July, early July. Uh, so it will be very interesting to kind of listen what to what they're talking, what they'll be saying now. Just uh, you know, now that we now that they're arguing that the thirty three act, uh, which is in play, which is the same structure that all the spot Bitcoin ETFs that have been um, that have been rejected are using, um, suddenly the SEC has more comfort using that as a way to give people exposure to to Bitcoin futures versus putting them in the Forty Act, which has a little bit more, um, which is a little bit more structured. The vast, vast, vast majority of ETFs out there right now are using the Forty Act. Um, so it's it's very technical. It's very in the weeds. But uh, I think right now everyone who has been pining for a spot Bitcoin ETF for the longest time is going to look at every little is going is, is going to read every every little uh change in the tea leaves yeah, yeah and i think they're going to be kind of disappointed because it's not it like the sec has been very consistent about the discussion of bitcoin as you know they're worried that it's open to manipulation um that it's very volatile um this structure is still going to, you know, focus on the futures, which they've demonstrated more comfort with. But I don't think it's really going to change anything when it comes to a physical structure, because um, that concern, unless they can um, prove that the SEC is, I don't know, somehow more comfortable with physical Bitcoin being in an ETF, that's not going to change anything. It's the the, the structure isn't really uh, the issue up for debate. I don't think at its core it's some kind of a side issue definitely definitely and then there's that whole um drama about how potentially grayscale might um sue the sec um if it doesn't get uh, the green light by uh july or whatever the deadline may be so that'll be interesting to watch um it's been pretty slow on the bitcoin etf news front but we might see kind of the excitement pick up again towards the middle of the year. But like you guys are saying, I don't really see the SEC changing its tune anytime this year, at least. Yeah. And, um, and that's not the only, and that's not the only big news that's been making its way through, especially the ETF issuer world and, and the discussion on, on issuing new products. Um, I also had a story out earlier this week um, in the past couple of days, uh, FINRA, which is, uh, not a specific regulator, but is uh, part of the entire is part of the ecosystem of of ETF issuers discussing um, and, and kind of deciding how how brokerages and, and eventually you know stuff goes from ETF issuers to the brokers to the the buyers. Uh, put out a request for comments uh, through the next uh, through I think the middle of May, um, asking people to talk about whether there should be more restrictions on retail investors being able to access uh, um, complex ETPs. And their version of complex differs significantly from the SEC's version, which is anything that has to do with leverage. Uh, they're sweeping up a lot of, uh, of basically anything that has that is not just an ETF that only holds equities or bonds. And uh, yeah, the there is a, a, a big, dis- there's a discussion going on right now as to, whether retail investors need to 
prove that they that they know how options work and they, and they know how like things like buffered ETFs work um, all the way up to requiring them to take a class or potentially just saying that if you're not an accredited, accredited investor, you're not allowed to work, you're not allowed to purchase these products that have an embedded options and, and you know, stray a little bit from the from the mainstream um what's your take on that i mean we've we've seen we're seeing i think the back end of a lot of people rushing in to file etfs and you know that's kind of set the uh the the launch uh calendar alight alight but um i've talked to a couple of issuers who really worry that this is going to uh severely limit the idea the ability to put out new strategies out there for people um I was just wondering, I think, is there a way to determine whether a, uh, like, is there a way to determine whether a fund is used for risk management primarily or not? Because I feel like the risk management products that are out there are generally doing what they should be doing um, and sweeping them under the umbrella of complex products. Um, like I, I read um, some issuers were saying in your um, article, could disadvantage investors looking to de-risk their portfolios with the uh, with FINRA basically saying, well, these um, things could make your portfolio more risky. Um, and that kind of disadvantages the retail investor who maybe doesn't understand options. And honestly, my own knowledge is pretty shaky. Um, so... I wonder if they could make that distinction or whether that would cause a lot of, you know, further actions from issuers. Um, it, it just, uh, yeah, it's a very tricky line to walk in my opinion. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I think where it becomes particularly difficult is that we just have started to see the, uh, the effects of the 2019 ETF rule really get into into play, where for the vast, vast, vast majority of ETFs, um, you can just file under the 40 Act uh, and wait 75 days, and you don't need to go through the entire accepted relief process. You don't need to uh, get you don't need to get in touch with the SEC and, and go through the back and forth. It's it's really made it a lot easier for ETFs to get to market, and and the vast majority of these ETFs are. You know, these are a lot of strategies that you know maybe garner, you know, if they're lucky, five million, or they're uh, companions to existing SMA or mutual fund strategies that uh, small advisors are running. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is kind of where it, it becomes a lot more difficult to to parse it out because. Um, you know, I don't think the SEC right now really has the manpower to go through every single one of these filings and make the dis- and you know go through the distinctions to say you know what you know is a is a, an investor going to understand the like a, a covered call ETF and understand the options underlying that versus say like a triple leveraged um, like a triple leveraged fund or a triple inverse fund. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a difficult. I think it's going to be hard to, to deal with right now when when you know they have so much else going on, not just in the ETF world, but just you know, uh, just patrolling the markets in general. Uh, Sami, any any thoughts from you? 
I agree with both of you. I mean, uh, it's such a tough balancing act. Where do you draw the line? I think these are very difficult questions to answer. And, you know, especially with everything the SEC is going on with crypto, especially um, DeFi, everything. There's so much on the SEC's plate. Can it really, you know, add to that? Um, it's 100% agree with both of you. All right. Well, uh, we're going to leave it at that because we're actually a little bit over time. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Exchange Trade Fridays with ETF.com. If you've missed any part of our conversation, go to your favorite podcast app in a couple hours or so and search for Exchange Trade Fridays. Uh, we will have a replay up there for you to listen to. Um, just a special programming note. Uh, next Friday, we will uh, all be off because the markets are closed for Good Friday. So uh, we will record a special Exchange Trade uh thursdays uh to uh usually to uh post on thursday um and we'll be recapping what we're hearing at etf exchange and from uh, the entire world of, of finance and business so uh for myself to meet roy and heather bell i'm dan micah that you've been listening to exchange trade fridays from etf.com and we will talk to you next week Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 